Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you.
I have to admit that I like Peter. I like to refer to Peter as Mr. Sandal and Mouth, because so frequently in the New Testament, he is just saying the wrong stuff over and over again. And I'm just so very grateful that God's word includes him. Because we are all, to one degree or another, just like him. Just saying and doing the wrong stuff. And I'm also glad that despite his many errors, despite the many times that he just says wrong stuff, despite that, you never see Jesus disown him. And in fact, even after he denies Christ, Three times when Christ resurrects, he goes to Peter specifically and three times gets Peter to say, you know I love you. And so I just see in that the essence of the gospel. If there was ever a better summation of the gospel, it is Peter. Because Peter's just always messing up, always saying bad stuff, and yet Christ never gives up on him. And it is Christ who does the restoration. It is Christ who does the redeeming. And yet, on the day of Pentecost, it was Peter that stood up in front of the Jews in Jerusalem and said, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life. You got to like Peter. And before you're too critical of Peter... How much water have you ever walked on? (laughs) Peter did. And yet, now Paul is going to tell us here in Galatians 2. By the way, we're in Galatians 2. Paul is going to tell us now about an episode between him and Peter where Peter was to be blamed yet again. This is after Pentecost. This is after walking on the water. This is after the resurrection of Christ. And yet Peter makes a major theological error. And Paul calls him on it. Which again, I'm just so glad to see. Because all of us in this room, I would like to think, are redeemed people. We are Christian people. And we still make mistakes. And yet, despite the correcting that the word of God will do to us, it's good to know that Christ doesn't give up on us, that he doesn't cast us away, that he doesn't say, okay, that's one too many. That's the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. You're not a Christian anymore. Instead, Christ retains us through all of our foolishness, and that's why I like Peter. Okay, so in Galatians 2, Paul is continuing to defend his apostleship against people who have come specifically from James, apparently, from Jerusalem, who have told the folks at Galatia, it's not good enough that you already have the Holy Spirit. In order to truly be saved, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. And Paul is arguing against that idea and then arguing that what he has said is the true and valid gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and that what they are saying is a perversion of the gospel, and in fact, go so far as to say, if anybody says anything other than what I've already taught you, then let them be accursed. There are some who come from James, from Jerusalem, and when they come, they cause Peter to have a crisis of conscience because Peter has been eating with the Gentiles, acting like the Gentiles, and then is going to dissemble. In other words, he's going to act like he wasn't really doing that when the Jews from Jerusalem show up. So Paul's going to call him out on his hypocrisy. But along the way, Paul is also demonstrating that even if an apostle, even if an elder from Jerusalem, Peter, John, and James, even if they are among you and they don't act according to the truth of the gospel, even they need to be called out for being wrong. And that is why Paul is continuing to insist that what he has taught the Galatian church is the true, right, proper gospel and even if an angel from heaven or an apostle from Jerusalem comes and portrays anything different, then they're going to be called out so that the truth of the gospel would remain with the Gentiles at Galatia. So let's read about what happened between Paul and Peter. You know that sometimes Peter is referred to as Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was guilty. He was guilty of hypocrisy. And Paul says, I withstood Peter to his face while we were in Antioch. Now, why is he recounting this story to the Galatian church? Is it to make Peter look bad? No, it's to demonstrate that, again, this gospel of salvation by grace through faith has to be defended no matter who opposes it. And again, Peter, one of the elders from Jerusalem, and now you have some from Jerusalem who have come to you and told you that you have to be circumcised and keep the law. I'm telling you that even those from Jerusalem need to be corrected by the truth of the gospel. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, now, if you know anything about the Jew and Gentile distinctions, you know that the Jews considered Gentiles dogs, unclean. You weren't to be in their house. You weren't to eat with them. You weren't to be fellowshipping with them in any way. And yet, because of the gospel of grace, for that reason, Peter actually had begun eating with the Gentiles showing that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. But Peter's one of the big three, Peter, John, and James. And some come from James. 
And so Peter thinks, now if they run back and tell James that I was here eating with the Gentiles, that might not look good for me when I go back to Jerusalem. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. That's how influential the Jews from Jerusalem were. Even Peter feared them. Was Peter correct? No! He was not correct to fear them. He should have stood strong. But remember, we're talking about Peter, Mr. Sandal in Mouth. And so he dissembled himself. He withdrew. He held himself aloof from the Gentiles. And as a consequence, verse 13 tells us, and the rest of the Jews that were there at Antioch joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, Paul's traveling companion, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So not only did Peter separate himself, but once he did that so that he was showing obedience to those who would come from Jerusalem, from James, once he did that, the other Jews followed suit. He said, well, Peter would know. I mean, he is one of the big three. He would know. And if he thinks it's not appropriate that we eat with the Gentiles, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And so there was a division within the church between the Jews and the Gentiles, which Paul calls hypocrisy. Do you know where that word comes from? That Greek word comes from the stage, actually. The first place is Historically, that we see the word hypocrite used is in reference to an actor on stage. And the hypocrite was a particular actor in any tragedy. And what the hypocrite would do is he would come out and explain what everybody on stage was doing wrong. So he was condemning them, but you never knew who the hypocrite was. That actor would wear a mask. And because he was masked, and criticizing everybody else, that word hypocrite moved its way into the concept of somebody who acts like something they're not really, which is exactly what Peter was doing. Even though he was still bound by the traditions of the Jews, he sat among the Gentiles acting like he was one of them when, in fact, he wasn't fully with them. And then when the Jews came, he acted like he hadn't been eating with the Gentiles so that he could please the Jews. He was being a hypocrite across the board. Paul calls him out on it because the rest of the Jews joined him in that hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that's the issue. That's where Paul is throwing down the gauntlet. The truth of the gospel must be defended despite whoever else and whatever authority they might pretend to have 
even if they are a pillar from Jerusalem, if the truth of the gospel is being compromised or twisted or perverted in any way by anyone, Paul argues it has to be defended. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all of them, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, which is exactly what he had been doing up till then, eating with the Gentiles, acting like it was free from the law. So if you're a Jew and you're acting like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? How is it that you are now giving credibility to those who came from Jerusalem and told the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law, and now you're siding with them as if they have authority and credibility, and by doing that, you are undermining the truth of the gospel, and you are perverting, again using Paul's words, you are perverting the truth of the gospel. Therefore, Peter deserved to be reprimanded right to his face in front of everybody, called him out. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and are not like the Jews. In other words, you're proving to the Gentiles while you're eating with them, you're proving that what I said is true, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, that in Christ we have freedom and liberty That in Christ we are no longer bound by the law or the rules of circumcision. So you were living that way even though you are a Jew. So then why would you make the Gentiles live like a Jew and take sides with those who want to circumcise them and make them keep the law? That makes no sense. It's irrefutable logic from Paul. Why are you being such a hypocrite? Verse 15, we, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, not the Gentile church, but we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, hold on to the way Paul is using this word sinners because he's not just referring to people who do bad things. He's saying Gentiles who don't know Christ Gentiles who are following after their gods, their mythologies, those Gentiles are sinners. They are the unredeemed. They are the unsaved. And of course, there is always that distinction between Jew and Gentile in Paul's mind. And so he says, we are Jews by nature, by blood. We are Abraham's seed. We are not Sinners from among the Gentiles. And nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. You get that? That's essential to understanding what the gospel is. The heart of the gospel is that no man is ever justified by the works of the law. That's not how you become justified in the sight of God. You can do the law from now until the end of your life, but you can't stand before God and argue 
that you kept the law and therefore you are justified because the works of the law never justified anybody, never righteousified anybody, never made anybody just like God. Nobody was ever justified by the works of the law. And you have to get that straight in your head if you're going to understand the gospel that Paul preached. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but here's how a man is justified, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed, we Jews, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since, he says again, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I've heard plenty of preachers in my life say that we are saved by Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by Jesus Christ. But then for our sanctification and justification, we have to go back to the law. Can that possibly be a valid sentiment given what we just read from Paul? Because by the flesh, by your works, by the actions of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17 But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, exact same word. He's using the exact same phraseology, just like earlier he said sinners, unredeemed, unsaved of the Gentiles. He is now saying, what can it possibly be like? to say that we are saved in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed in Jesus Christ, we are justified in Jesus Christ, and yet, nevertheless, we still have some sin we have to pay for. We are still sinners. We still have to justify ourselves. And if you are arguing that you have to justify yourself and the means that you are going to use is the law of Moses, that is tantamount to admitting, according to Paul, that Jesus did not fully save you because he died, he resurrected, he did everything he could, and yet you still are considered a sinner, like an unsaved Gentile. You still have to get busy doing something to get yourself justified. And what would the result of that be? What would be the result of a theology that says, Jesus did everything he could to save his people, but now those people still have to come up behind him and clean up the mess that he left behind, and they are still considered to be sinners rather than saved and redeemed. The result of that, says Paul, if we are found sinners, the result is Christ then becomes the minister of sin. He wasn't the minister of redemption full and complete. He wasn't the minister of salvation utterly. Instead, 
the result of knowing Christ is that you are left even more conscious of your sinfulness, making Christ the minister of sin. Do you understand the implications of what Paul is saying? Here, we're going to let Charles Ellicott say it. This is from his commentary for English readers. If you don't know George Ellicott, he was born in 1819, died in 1905. So this is a while ago, and yet still within the church, as there has been for the last 2,000 years, there have been people who are confused on this issue. And yet Paul lays it out very black and white. Either Jesus is a complete and utter savior, or he's the minister of sin. And Paul's answer to the question, is Christ then the minister of sin? His answer is emphatic. No, no way, may it never be. God forbid, uh uh-uh, no, goose egg, nada, can't possibly be. Has anybody ever heard it preached to you that Christ is your savior? But now you got to justify yourself. You got to do some works. You got to work hard. Yeah. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've heard that. Paul says right here, condemns it most thoroughly by saying that that makes Christ the minister of sin rather than a savior. Here's the way Ellicott put it. This is his commentary on this verse, and I just like it so much. I'm going to read it to you. We sought justification in Christ, but if with all our seeking something more was needed, like a rigid performance of the law, that law which we had formerly abandoned, that's what Paul is saying, we who are Jews were under the law, then we came to faith in Christ and we are no longer justified by the law. And yet if we are to return to a rigid performance of that very law, the law which we had formerly abandoned, then there was still something wanting to our justification. We were sinners. Hamartalos, I think is the word. We are still sinners on a par with the unsaved Gentiles. And all that Christianity seems to have done for us was to lead us deeper into sin what a profane thought so I want you to understand how emphatic Paul is here and why he withstood Peter to his face because Peter's hypocrisy led to the idea that Christ could save Christ could even give you the Holy Spirit Christ could die and redeem you And yet, religiously, you would be required to do some act of the law, and the purpose of the law was justification, which is why nobody utterly accomplished it. I've said it so many times. All the law can do is hold you guilty. All the law can do is condemn you. All the law can do is point at the things you did wrong and say, wow, that was bad. But the law can't help you. The law can't bend down and scoop you up. It can't empathize with you for what you're going through. All it can do is condemn you. And so, if you're saying the law, because it is nothing but condemnation, is then abandoned in Christ, what is the logic of saying, but then once Christ has come and redeemed us, 
we need to return to that very law for justification. Paul says the natural result of that is to say that Christ is not a full and complete savior and that you have to do something in order to finish the work that he began. And that means that Christ is a minister. The resulting consequence of everything he did is that he leaves you sinful, even more sinful. And so he denounces that idea completely. I like the phrase that Ellicott used, what a profane thought. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So what is he arguing here? He's saying, I have already through Christ, argued that the law cannot justify you and is not the standard for sanctification or righteousness before God. I have already said that Christ is full and complete Savior and the law could not do what Christ has already accomplished. But having torn it down, am I now going to agree with the Jews from Jerusalem and say, oh yeah, remember that law thing? that a minute ago I told you wasn't necessary, uh, yeah, I'm going to build that back up again. You do need to be circumcised. You do need to keep the law. Paul says, why would I do that? I would prove myself. As a consequence of doing that, I would prove that I am still a transgressor, still a sinner, meaning that Christ is, in fact, a minister of sin, which simply cannot be. So now I'm going to read that whole section that I've torn apart just so you can hear Paul's argument in context. Starting at verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then A minister of sin? God forbid, may that never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Okay, what he's saying is, all the law accomplished was killing me. It did not redeem me, did not sanctify me, it did not lift me up, it did not justify me before God. All it did was prove that I was a sinner and it killed me. It's all the law could accomplish. It couldn't save me, but 
now that the law has killed me, I can be raised again in Christ. And being raised again in Christ, I now, through faith, accomplish all the things that the law could never accomplish. For through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. Also, by forming that contrast, through the law, I died to the law so that I could live to God, that implies that there's no way to live to God through the law. The law is not the way to get there. Christ is the way to get there. The same Christ who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Paul is arguing that very thing, that the law simply cannot justify you, cannot get you to God, but you will live in God once you are redeemed through Christ and the law is dead to you. Verse 20, now he's going to explain how it is that he is now living to God. I have been crucified with Christ. An essential theological understanding is that Christ died, though personally innocent, though he was not a sinner, though he didn't deserve the death that he died. Therefore, we say that it was a vicarious atonement. In other words, he was a substitute. He died on behalf of someone else. We deserve to die. We deserve to pay for our sin penalty. That's why hell exists. Because we deserve to be the ones who are actually punished for the things that we have actually done. And yet we don't. Really, you're silent on that one? Yeah, you're just going to sit there and stare at me? We don't. Because our perfect substitute paid that sin penalty price for us. Therefore, Paul could say, I have been crucified in Christ. When Christ died and paid the sin penalty, my sins were on that cross. Therefore, I am living to God, whereas all the law could do was condemn me. So through the law, I died to the law, but through Christ, I live to God. And my sins can't stop me. My sins cannot hold me back from God. My sins do not create a separation because my sins were utterly, fully, completely paid for on Calvary through Christ. And I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Remarkable, beautiful language. He died for me. He was raised for me. He ever lives for me. He is my intercessor at this very moment. So that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And the life that we live now in the flesh isn't even our own lives anymore. We live for the glory of God. We live through Jesus Christ. We live by the Holy Spirit who is inhabiting us. I live by faith in the Son of God who, I just can't get over this, who loved me. I know people who don't like me. I didn't mean to look right at you when I said God, holy God, righteous God, eternal God, maker of heaven and earth. That God loved me? And that love is evidenced by the fact that he sent his son to die for me. Herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and gave his son for us. The fact that he would give his son to die for wretches like you and I is why Paul argues it has to be grace. It can't be something you deserve. It can't be because of things you've done. Look at what you've done. Look at the mess you have made. And if you want the law to be your standard for righteousness and justification, the law will condemn you. Or, through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you ever loves you. Seems like a better deal in my head. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me. And delivered himself up, willingly sacrificed himself, made himself the adequate payment and ransom for my sinfulness, and he delivered himself up for me. So if I were to agree that the law is the basis for your justification, if I were to agree to that, says Paul, then I'd be nullifying the grace of God. If the grace of God is fully sufficient to save you eternally, if the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient, and then I say, as long as you, in this case, get circumcised, as long as you also keep the law, as lo- then I'm admitting that Christ was not a fully sufficient Savior. Then I'm admitting that he is the minister of sin because you still have some sinfulness you have to pay for. And by admitting that, I am nullifying the grace of God. I'm eradicating it. I'm doing away with it. That's his closing salvo here in verse 21 to the end of this argument. I... Do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ, the sacrifice, the one who laid down his life on purpose, the one who willingly gave himself up for all our sinfulness, he died for nothing. He died needlessly. There was no point to him coming to the earth. There was no point in sacrificing him. There was no point for anything he went through if you're capable. If you could have done it yourself, then who needs him? You can do it. 
but I will not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, if righteousness comes through the law, that implies righteousness don't come through the law. You cannot be justified by the law. How many times has Paul said that in this very short section we're looking at this morning? He just keeps hammering away at that idea. No flesh is justified by the law. No one can be redeemed by the law. No one's made righteous by the law. He keeps saying it and saying it and saying it because if the law cannot help you, your flesh cannot help you, your free will cannot help you, Therefore, you need a Savior. And then Christ gets all the glory. And so, I will not. And I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians. He doesn't say at this point, you've made a slight theological error. Let me correct you. Instead, what he says is, you're bewitched. You're under a spell. Who bewitched you? Who turned your mind like this that you would think that the law was the means of your own justification? I told you the truth. I preached the truth to you. I came and proved it to you. The proof is the miracles that were done and the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. The very fact that it's already been proven to you that God has saved you, that he redeemed you through Jesus Christ, that he chose you before the foundation of the world. You are as saved as saved can be. And then somebody talked you into doing things in order to justify yourself. You've been bewitched. (laughs) You're nuts. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law? The answer is no. Or did you receive it by hearing with faith? That's the way they received it. They received the Holy Spirit because of their faith in Jesus Christ that was not accomplished by the law. So verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? I kept reading because of the contrast of chapter 3 where he kept saying by the law is no flesh justified so he has already laid out the basic principle flesh is not justified by the law I began by teaching you faith in Jesus Christ through that faith through the grace of God you received the Holy Spirit it wasn't by the law it was through the hearing of of faith, through faith, with faith in Jesus Christ. And now are you so stupid, are you so foolish, that having begun by the Holy Spirit, you now think you're going to be perfected by your flesh? You think I'm being too harsh by saying stupid? Listen to verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? 
if indeed it was all in vain? Does he then who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's Paul's argument. Okay, now that entire argument is based in the notion that your flesh, by the law, simply cannot do anything to justify you before God. The way that is preached to people is you have to make a decision. You have to do something. You have to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You have to look at his batting average and decide that he's a man of integrity and then take that leap of faith. You have to choose him. You have to do stuff in order for Jesus to become your Savior and in order for him to forgive you of your sin. And then you have to be sufficiently penitent. And then you have to be sufficiently capable. And then you have to do good things Build up your righteous works. I was raised with the idea that when you get to the gate of heaven, that Peter would be standing there with a great scale and that all your good works would be put on one side of the scale and all your bad works would be, would be put on the other side of the scale. And if the good works at least slightly tip the scale in your favor against the bad works, then congratulations, you're going to heaven forever. Because it was all about works. It was all about justifying yourself by your flesh. And the basis of the whole notion that you can justify yourself by your flesh is based in the idea of your free will. That you can decide to do it. And that God is going to be obligated by you doing it. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about Reformation history, and I'm running out of time just like I knew I was going to, but let's see if I can get through at least some of this. The book of Galatians, properly understood, will help you understand why we are a Protestant church and not a Catholic church, Roman Catholic church. Because the Roman Catholic Church is all about, you got to do stuff. You got to do some more Hail Marys, and you got to do some more Our Fathers, and some more Rosaries, and you got to, and that's the way that you pay for your sinfulness. That's the way you pay for your transgressions. You got to do stuff. And so historically, Martin Luther started arguing the same thing that we read here in Galatians that the just will live by faith. Those who are justified are the ones who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by their works. And he argued that so adamantly that there was also a fellow named Desiderius Erasmus. Are you familiar with the name Erasmus? Erasmus wrote a book on the freedom of the will. It was a discourse that he wrote on the freedom of the will in defense of the idea that you actually could justify yourself through your own flesh, through your works, and by your willingness. You just have to decide you're going to be better, and then you're going to be better. Well, that is the reason that Martin Luther wrote the book, The Bondage of the Will. Because biblically, your will is not free. Biblically, your will is in bondage. Here, Steve, 
if I could convince you that you need to run through that wall, I mean really talk you into it, so that you will to do it. You really will to do it. Can you do it? No, because your will is limited by your ability. So even though you may will to do that, I will to fly. I will to be six foot two and blonde. But it doesn't matter what I will. Jesus said, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? Or add one day to your life? You can't do that by thinking, by willing, by taking thought. You can't do it because your will is severely limited. Which is why... If your will is limited by your sinfulness, by your depravity, that your will cannot be the motivation for your salvation. Here, I'll I'll read a little bit here about Luther's bondage of the will, just because I find this fascinating that Erasmus's arguments are still being said today. When Luther read what Erasmus wrote, on the freedom of the will, Luther wrote to him and said, you and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. In other words, he's saying, the very fact that you brought it down to the will of man, whether man is capable of redeeming himself, the fact that you narrowed it down to just the will proves that you're the one, you're the only one who saw that that's the hinge on which everything else turns here. The whole argument of law versus grace really turns on the hinge of, do you have the ability to do it? Do you have the willpower to obligate God? So Erasmus's arguments in support of the doctrine of free will were these five, basically. Number one, the fact that God commands certain things implies that man has the ability to obey those commands. I hear that preached every day. The advocates of free will say, well, God wouldn't give you a command if you didn't have the ability to do it. Well, that was Erasmus's argument. Number two, if man does not have the free will to obey God and or to believe him, then God is unjust to demand it of man that they believe. If they don't have the ability to choose to believe, then it's not fair. I hear that argument all the time. Number three, Erasmus denied that natural man can only do evil. Even the pagans, he insisted, do some good. So he argued that there was some good in everybody. It's the same thinking that leads to phrases like, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the answer to that is, there are no good people. But Erasmus argues that even the pagans do some good. Number four, Erasmus maintains that natural man's will is weak, but not powerless. Man's will needs grace to accomplish the good, But he distinguishes several kinds of grace that are supposedly given to man to assist him in doing good. By the way, it's the same way the Catholic Church argues to this very day. They use the word grace. They use our language. They talk grace. And if you're not paying attention, you'll get confused. Because they say the grace of God is an empowering that God gives you in order to 
make you or allow you to do the good so that you are justifying yourself in the good that you're doing. Now, grace is required, but you're the one who's actually doing it. Number five, perhaps the most important element of Erasmus' defense of free will is that man can have positive merit with God. In other words, what I just described to you, having that great scale, your good deeds and your bad deeds. He is arguing that when you do good things, it's racking up points in heaven. And you are getting positive merit with God so that when you get to heaven, he's going to look at you and say, good job. You did a bunch of good stuff. Instead of, you're a redeemed sinner. Luther condemned Erasmus' efforts. Here's what he wrote. On so great a subject, you say nothing but what has been said before. Therefore, you say less about and attribute more unto free will than the sophists have hitherto said or attributed. In other words, he's, he's condemning what he said and said, this is the same old argument. You're just recycling the same old stuff. Again, I see this on social media constantly. People just keep making these same arguments that have been answered so many times. He added, I greatly feel for you for having defiled your most beautiful and ingenious language with such vile trash. He's doing what Paul did. He's just arguing that this is garbage. This idea that you have a free will and that you can justify yourself before God is trash. But hang on, he's going to combine it to the law, and you're going to understand why we're taking this little excursion. Luther identifies the central issue and its unspeakable importance. It is essential, he writes, for a Christian to know whether or not the will does anything in those things which pertain to salvation. Nay, let me tell you, this is the very hinge upon which our discussion turns. And then later in section 7, he says, But if I know not the distinction between our working and the power of God, then I know not God himself. You don't know anything about God if you think God is waiting for you to do it. And if I know not God, I cannot worship him, I cannot praise him, I cannot give him thanks, nor can I serve him. For I shall not know how much I ought to ascribe to myself and how much to God. Unless I truly, genuinely know God, I'm going to be up there taking credit for it. In things which pertain to salvation or damnation, the creature has no free will, but it is captive, slave, and servant, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. It's one or the other. There's no gray area in the middle. There's no neutrality. You are either utterly a slave to Christ or you are a slave to Satan himself, and that's the whole world. And it's worth noting that Luther demanded this kind of logical consistency in the formulation of his doctrine. What then of the many 
conditional statements in scripture that Erasmus said, because Erasmus argued, but there's statements like, if you will hear and if you will do, do these prove that man has a free will or does it prove that they can or cannot hear? Or is it so that by these, God mocks man? This is Erasmus' argument. Because man cannot obey them anyway. Luther utterly rejects those conclusions and he writes, Why is this not rather drawn as a conclusion? Like this, Therefore God tries us, that by his law he might bring us to the knowledge of our own impotency. And if we be his friends or if he is thereby righteously and deservedly insulting and deriding us, or if we be his proud enemies. Do you understand what Luther's arguing? Yes, God puts things in front of us that we just can't do. Yes, he put the law in front of us that we just can't perform. And why did he do that? Paul argues it is so that Christ gets all the glory forever Luther argues, what if this is all part of God proving to us our complete incapability? If you understand the law rightly, you know you can't do it. Every single one of you car-driving people have broken the Sabbath already. That's one of the big ten, you sinners. Already. And so the law and the rules of God even though he knows we can't perform them, are done for the purpose of proving to us our own incapability and impotency. Let me just finish with this. I I just, I love this writing. This is from section 56 of uh, The Bondage of the Will. And in the place where I take occasion to enforce this, this is my general reply, that man by the works of the law and by the words of the law, is admonished and taught what he ought to do, not what he can do. That is, that he is brought to know his own sin, but not to believe that he has any strength within himself. Wherefore, friend Erasmus, As often as you throw in my teeth the words of the law, so often I throw into yours that of Paul, which say, by the law is the knowledge of sin, not of the power of the will. The law teaches you the power of your own sin, not your own capability and willful ability. By the law is the knowledge of sin, not of the power of your will. Heap together, therefore, out of the largest concordances, all of the imperative words into one big chaos, provided that they be not words of the promise, but of the requirement of the law only. Take all of the law, all the concordances about the law, heap them up into one big pile of chaos, and I will immediately declare that by them is also shown what man ought to do, not what they can do, not what they actually do, do. I love Luther's argument. These are the arguments, this law versus grace distinction that we're reading about right now. This is the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation. This is why 
we are not Roman Catholic today and why we continue to argue that the true gospel is Christ is fully sufficient. Christ saved his people utterly and completely. You cannot come along behind him and justify yourself. And if you were going to justify yourself, you'd probably want to try to use the law. All the law could do is prove to you that you are sinful and incapable. It cannot save you. I'm making this as clear as I can make it. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, I say, therefore, the whole church of Jesus Christ says, run to Christ. Have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to be justified. It is not going to be your flesh. Give up on yourself. Take sides with God against yourself. Admit your own capability. Run to Christ. Amen. I'm done. One of the best known hymns in all of English hymnody fits so perfectly with the message that we just heard. We do have assurance. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough. Because the answer is we can't do enough. Never have done enough. But Christ has. That's our assurance.
listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.